In the book of Ephesians, Paul wrote a letter to explain who we are and who we are, who we are, and what we have in Christ. At the time in history that Paul wrote this, Christians were on the run. Christians were on the run. Christians were on the run. They had no rights and they were in great danger. Paul actually wrote this letter while on house arrest in Rome. And despite the circumstances, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, describing the fullness and richness of life in Christ. Paul knew that if the Ephesians understood who they were and began to live in Christ, the world would never be the same. The same can be true for today. If we understand what it means to live in Christ, if we understand what it means to live in Christ, if we understood what it meant to live in Christ, if we understand what it means to live in Christ, to be the church, our city and our world would never be the same. Never be the same. Would never be the same. Would never be the same. Would never be the same. never understand we never be the same as long as we live in Christ father I pray that this morning as we um, open our word as we open our ears father I pray that you would open our hearts to hear you Lord that we would have an attitude of adoration an attitude of of being willing to learn, God, and that you would speak to us, that you would speak truth to us, that we would be transformed, that we would not ever be the same. Lord, we ask it, we pray it, and actually expect it. In Christ's name, amen. So today we finish the first section of the book of Ephesians. Remember I told you it was six, six chapters, 155 verses, the first half of the book, chapters 1, 2, and 3, relate to doctrine. And doctrine simply means this. It is what we are instructed to do. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are actually books of application. We want to apply what Paul has taught us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so, let me read to you Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, and then back up, and then move forward at the same time. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason. Now that's like therefore, right? You want to know he's writing for something. He says, for this reason. And the reason that he's writing is that the mystery that we're going to talk about in just a moment, the mystery has been revealed to all of humanity through the Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, for this reason, because the mystery has been revealed, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh-oh. Paul says, because you've got the mystery, now I'm going to drop to my knees and pray for you. Because now you are accountable to what you've been told. 
We are no longer living in ignorance. It's no longer a mystery, but it's a truth. And it's a truth that's in our face. It's a truth that's in our head. And he says, now, because you have it, I'm going to pray for you. He says, I bow, to, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his power in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Flashback. Remember we said the power that works in us is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Was the same power that had the forgiveness of sin. So when we sit here and think, I don't have the power, he just said, oh, no, 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 no. You've got the power in you that brought holy God from heaven through a, through a virgin to live a sinless life, to die on a cross, to be buried in a tomb, to rise again on the third day. That power that did all of that is in you. The power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church. By Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul has just written a doxology. Paul has just finished this wonderful instructions on the, on the instruction on the doctrines of Scripture and on the mystery that's been revealed and the Christ that's in us and all of these things. And if you just remember with me, he said the first thing that we began to understand is that you have been reconciled to God through Christ. And when you were reconciled to God through Christ, you were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything that you were going to need to be a child of God, to live out as a child of God, you got it that moment. God planned it. Jesus purchased it. The Holy Spirit presented it. And now it is yours and you have it. So you have been reconciled to God. If you notice there in your outline, I said there were two walls of separation. Two walls of separation that have been taught to us or in, we've been instructed about in the book of Ephesians. The first one is implied. You remember in the Old Testament when they had the temple, whether it was a permanent building or a tent, you could not go into the Holy of Holies. The priest had to go in there. The scripture says in Matthew 27, maybe about verse 50, that when Christ died, the temple veil was torn. In other words, the righteous wall of separation was broken, and now you as humanity have full access to God through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says there is no longer a wall of separation. And Paul says, I give praise to God because that separation is gone. That we have been united to God the Father. We have been reconciled to Him. That which was a stranger, an alien, an enemy has been brought near. And we're not only a joint heir or an heir of God, but we're a joint heir with Christ. So how does that look like? God is finite in my, in my illustration. He's not infinite. He is finite. So he knows he's God the Father, and he's going to write out his will. And so when he starts writing out his will, he says, I'm going to place Chris in my will. Well, I've got another heir, 
And my other heir, his name is Jesus. And Jesus is pretty awesome. And, but I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make Chris a joint heir with Christ. In other words, he's not going to get more, but I am an equal in, inheritance. I inherit equally to Christ. So that power that raised him from the dead is mine, and all the riches of God are mine through Christ. I don't, I'm not worth it, but I deserve it. Um, God declared so. I don't deserve it, but I'm worth it. I'm sorry. I'm, God declared it so, so he made that for me. I am his, and I am worthy of it by his declaration. Now, the second wall of separation that Paul has talked to us about, we read over in Ephesians chapter 2, and we would find out when, let's just go verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, you were strangers, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, from the covenants of the promise. But now in Christ, you who were once off, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jump up. And he talks to us about the wall of separation in the scripture in other places here in Ephesians. You were distant. And God said to us, he said, I have united you with me. The temple veil is torn. You no longer have to have a go-between. And everybody was like, man, that is awesome. We have the opportunity to go to heaven, and we have the opportunity to be reconciled with God. He said, but not only am I telling you that the wall of the, the veil is broken, but I'm telling you that the wall of separation, the unrighteous wall, is broken. Now, you, the body of Christ, he said, I have created a new group of people, a new citizenship, a new identity. We are known as children of God. And he says, I am bringing you together to unite you to be one people in Christ. Now, that's hard. Therefore, Paul says, for this reason, because the mystery has now been revealed to you, the mystery is that you can be reconciled with God. And the mystery is that now you've got to be reconciled. You must be reconciled. Not you should be, but you must be reconciled to one another. He says, for this reason, I am praying for you. For this reason, I am falling to my knees. That for the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I am going to God on your behalf because the task that God has called you to is going to be a task that you cannot do on your own because it is not comfortable always. It is not easy always. It's not understood always. He says, but I am going to my knees on your behalf so that you will know. I told you that Paul had offered a doxology. Paul is telling us, to God be the glory for the things that he has done. That's what he's telling us. So let's go back down to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21. This is Paul's doxology. It says, to him, God, be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. So let's break down Paul's doxology. The first thing it says is to him be the glory. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. And the, so that, um, <laughs> what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the beauty, the brightness of his unlimited perfection. 
When your heart breaks out in words, glory to God, it's like the Gatorade bath at the end of a football game. It's like, it's like the encore at Carnegie Hall. Where the performance has been made and you were so moved by it that you stand and applaud and you say, Encore, encore. And I think it's planned, honestly. They walk off and we all know they're coming back. But in adoration for what they have done, we begin to cry out, More, more, more. Paul says, To God be the glory. More, more, more. It's what He's done for me. And that's what He's talking to us about this morning. So to Him be the glory. We may sing or shout it with more passion to athletes, rock stars, politicians, or purple mountain majesties than we do to God. But make no mistake, there's a doxology sung in every heart. That doxology that's in your heart, regardless of who you sing it to and regardless of who you shout it to, it was put in your heart for one, for God. He wants you to sing it to Him. Paul is teaching us. We're created by God to sing a doxology to Him. So why do we feel awkward? The main reason, I believe, that people feel awkward about singing or shouting glory to God is simply that He is not as real to them as LeBron, Tom Brady, Lionel Messi. Did I say that right? M-E-S-S-I, all right, soccer player, all right, Bruno Mars or Taylor Swift, okay? We can shout and sing and throw Gatorade and to them because they feel real. And God, it's awkward for us to shout to God because we're not tight like that. And Paul has just spent three chapters telling us why he's tight with God. He said, I was a hater of Christians. And by the will of God, I became an apostle. And when I became an apostle, I learned the mystery that I was distant from God, but I was brought near by Christ. He said, I learned the rest of the mystery as I began to walk with Him. Not only was I distant from God and brought near by Christ, he says, but I was distant from humanity and I was brought near by Him. You see, Paul was the Jew among Jews, the hater of the Gentiles, the hater of Christians. He had an encounter with Christ in Acts chapter 9 that not only changed his behavior, but changed his mindset. And then, all of a sudden, he begins to say that he was actually the one called by God to be the missionary to the non-Jew. That's a transformation. Paul is singing a doxology. Paul is shouting a doxology to God be the glory. Because he brought me near. We've all sung a doxology. A doxology is singing or shouting admiration to one we honor and adore. Paul chose to use his doxology for Christ. Where are you using yours? Who is getting your adoration? Who is getting your praise? Who wakes you up in the morning and makes you go, I can't miss it? He says, to him be the glory. He expands that. He says, to him be the glory in the church. In Tuscaloosa, to the glory be to Nick Saban. 
Come on now, hush. Um, <laughs> at Quicken Loans Arena, who would get the glory there? LeBron, there we go. We know where, um, we sing some of our doxologies, don't we? <laughs> no. But to God be the glory in the church. Look at verse 10. Go back up with me. Verse 10, it says this. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. He says, to God be the glory in the church. The reason that God created the world and called the church into being is so that we would have a completely diversified yet unified group of people shouting adoration and praise to God. That's what He wants us to do. And He says, to God be the glory in the church to reflect the wisdom to the universe. Mount Zion Baptist Church is a local expression of this universal church. Our destiny, therefore, is to be a corporate and visible and audible doxology to God. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah was pictured and saw the picture of the throne room, went into the throne room, he said that he looked and he saw seraphim, right? And what were they shouting out to God? Holy, holy, holy. Let's do that this morning. So we're going to make this in three sections. Section one, section two, section three. When I point to you, I want you to, to channel your inner seraphim here with me, all right? I want you to shout it out like you were in the throne room before God. So here we go. And Paul and Isaiah said, woe is me. He said, I got into the holiness of God when those seraphim were singing their doxology, when they were doing what they were doing. He said, woe is me, I'm the man of unclean lips. You see, when you realize all the things that he's done for you, when you bow low before him and you see him, the doxology that he created in you will be one that shouts, To God be the glory, because I was lost and now I'm found. I was hurt and now I'm healed. I was angry and bitter and now I am not. I was separate, but I have been drawn near. To him be the glory in the church. But he didn't stop there in his doxology. He said, to him be the glory in the church and by Jesus Christ. Now, we'll tell you that by is better understood if we say in. So, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So, if the church is the theater in which the principalities and powers are to go sit in to understand that God is king, that he is the one in charge, that he is the one that is over all, and that he is the one that's above all, and that he is the one that is to be worshipped. If the church is the theater for them to sit in, then what we have to understand is that the way the church glorifies God is by simply providing an arena where the actors perform for the audience of one and cry out, That is what they see. They're put on notice that there is one that is supreme. That there is one in charge. And Paul says, I have seen it. 
I was distant. I was brought near. I was reconciled to God. I have seen it. They were distant. They were brought near. They were distant from God. Oh, wait a minute. And they were distant from each other. I have seen it that God's ultimate mystery and God's ultimate plan is not to have pockets of people, but to have a people named by my name who live out for my glory so that the universe is on notice that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And that is what he is shouting. That is why he is singing a doxology to us. I guess we could change the picture and see the church as a hospital established by God where his son is the only physician. And so God gets the glory in the hospital by all the people getting well through the treatment of the son. Ephesians 3.21 would then be translated, Glory to God in the church, his hospital, and in his son, the surgeon, Jesus Christ, who comes in and removes my sin, my iniquity, and heals me and makes me whole. To God be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Today in the entertainment world, it would be glory to LeBron, glory to Maroon 5. Yesterday, it was glory to Greg Maddox and Lionel Richie. Tomorrow, it'll be glory to somebody else because fame is fleeting. The greatest of humanity, whether we're talking about the Apostle Paul and Mother Teresa, they're only meteors in the sky of history. But God says, my son is like the sun. He rises every day. He does not burn out. He is bright. He is there. To Him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. It's not a fleeting fame. But it's fame to Him forever. For all to see. For all to hear. That's why we sing glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning. It is now and it ever shall be world without end. Amen. So we're sitting here and we see Paul's doxology. Glory to God. Glory to God in the church. Glory to God in the church and in his Son. And glory be to God forever and ever. But what is the cause of Paul's doxology? Go back with me to verse 20 of chapter 3. Where it says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. Now, that's a whole lot, by the way. You know that, right? Hey, y'all, I'm going to tell y'all right now, I'm praying the air conditioner is working by next Sunday. Can I get an amen? amen. Woo! Because let me tell y'all something, it's hot up here. Mm. I'm going to have to go see the dry cleaner and say, this coat needs cleaning. Uh, but now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, According to the power that works in us, to him be the glory. <laughs> when we begin to understand doxologies in Scripture, there's usually a phrase or two in them that sum up why the doxology is being sung. So let me give you an example. 
in Jude, the book of Jude, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing, be glory. So what sends Jude into a moment of doxology is the keeping power of God. Jude says, I've got to sing a doxology because I just realized that God is able to keep me from falling. That he began a work in me and he will deliver me. There's another one in... Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 17, to the king of the ages. Paul is in another spot of doxology. He says, I have a doxology in me because I just realized something that no matter who else may rise up, that God is the king of the ages, so I can't help but praise him. He says, to him be the glory. So what is the catchphrase, if you will, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20? It's the thought that in the church... God can do more than we have asked him to do and more than we ever thought he could do. Paul says, oh my goodness, I'm going to have a fit. Because God can do more than I can think. God can do more than I can imagine. God can do more than I ever understood him to do. So if Paul were the pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church, if he was here today... What would he do? If Paul were the pastor of this church, I think every time he lifted his eyes to heaven, he would see God saying, I can do more in this church than you're asking. I can do more in this church than you're thinking. And Paul would fall on his knees and say, okay, God, I believe you can do more. I'm asking, I'm thinking. He would fall to his knees and he would pray. And he would look up to heaven and God would say, I can do more than you're asking. I can do more than you're thinking. And Paul would fall back on his knees and he would ask him again. And but God would say, I can do more than you're asking. I can do more than you're thinking. And you see, we limit ourselves because we believe that God is finite. God is infinite. God wants to do more in you than you can imagine. God wants to do more than you than you're asking Him for. Are you praying small prayers? Are you believing small things? Are you asking Him for the impossibles in your life, the things that only He can do? Are you believing that he really does want to turn the world upside down and he wants to use you to do it? I really believe that we will give a mental assent to that and say yes, and then we will give a practical no. Do you want God to use you? Oh, yes, pastor. Are you available on Mondays and Wednesdays from 3 to 4.45? And God says, oh, no, I want you to be available to me, to me all times, anytime, everywhere you are, be available to me. Paul said, to God be the glory. Because when I was separate, he drew me near. When I was vile, he made me pleasant. <laughs> when I was a stranger and an alien to him, he got me close. When I hated my brothers and sisters around me in him, he changed my heart and he gave me a love for people that I didn't think I could love. God can do more than you ask. So why is Paul singing? Paul is singing because he sees two things. He sees that the power of God over the church goes beyond what you think. He's singing because he sees that the love of God for the church goes beyond what we might imagine. Jump back up with me to verse 18. That you may be able to comprehend... Now, if you may be able to comprehend it, the implication is right now you don't comprehend it. And in your natural self, you won't comprehend it. That you may be able to comprehend what is the width 
and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. I know one of Satan's best lies is God loves your neighbor better than he loves you. That God can't love you because of who you've been. That God can't love you because of what you have or you don't have or where you came from or where you didn't come from. One of his best lies is they didn't love you. That person didn't love you. That person didn't love you. And if they didn't love you, why in the world would God love you? But Paul says, I got to bust out in a doxology because I have seen the mystery. The mystery is that God loves me with an everlasting love that does not leave me. He loves me with a love that said he loved the, so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him does not perish, but they get life, everlasting life. Paul says, I got to sing. I got to shout. I've got to declare to him be the glory because nobody else deserves the glory. Because nobody else can do what my God has done. It's Him. Today. This day. Would you just, in the voice of your mind, whisper to God. God, would you let me see even just a glimpse of what Paul saw. God, would you let me experience just an inkling of what Paul experienced. God, would you let me... For one moment, as we close this service, would you, for one moment, give me an ounce of doxology? To not worry about who's around me and what are they thinking. But to be like the seraphim and just cry out, holy, holy, holy. To be like Paul that says, to him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, forever and ever. And ever. You see, when you have experienced much grace, you can have much adoration. That's why I tell you often, God, don't ever let me forget what it was like not to be in relationship with you. Not to be in fellowship with you. And this morning, you have the opportunity to sing your own doxology. To God be the glory. Because, and you fill in the blank. To God be the glory, he healed my body. To God be the glory, he healed my soul. To God be the glory, he cleansed my dirty mind. To God be the glory, he made me no longer an addict to spending. To God be the glory, he healed me from substance. To God be the glory, he healed my home. To God be the glory, he spared my children. To God be the glory, he made me a friend. To God be the glory, he had caused me to have love for people that I have in my life hated. To God be the glory, great things he has done. To great things he has done. He's done those great things for you. To God be the glory, I no longer believe the lies. To God be the glory. I'm worth it. I'm made in His image. 